Let's open our Bibles to the book of James, the first chapter. I brought you a lesson about a week ago from the first part of the book of James, and I gave you an outline for the whole chapter, and we preached on the first two points of this outline. And I'll repeat the outline so you'll be up to date, and we'll pick up with verse 9. But let me just give you the outline briefly again. It's, we gave you verses 2 through 4. Verse 1 was introduction, but verses 2 through 4, patience through tribulation. And if you didn't copy those down last week and you'd like to, this makes a good outline for teaching if you're teaching the Bible or preaching the message, either one. Verses 2 through 4 is patience through tribulation. Verses 5 through 8 is wisdom through prayer. Verses 9 through 11, riches through poverty. That's where we'll start tonight. Riches through poverty. Verses 13 and 14. Sin through lust and lure. Now, the reason we omitted 12, it was tied in with one of the points earlier. So if you notice in this outline, we just omitted 12 because we touched on it when we were teaching the first portion of uh, patience through tribulation. Now then, verses 13 14, sin through lust and lure. Verses 15 through 17, death through sin. Verses 18 through 20, life through the word. Life through the word. In verses 21 through 27, the longer section of the division, is blessing through doing. Blessing through doing. Now, I want you to pick up with verse 9. We have already taught patience through tribulation and wisdom through prayer. That's where we ended up last week. And then verse 9 says, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low. Because as the flower of grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his way. So both the rich and poor are going to die, right? And so the, the point is, it, it says here, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. Now, he's not exalted with riches, and the rich man in that he is made low. He's not made low as far as uh, the wealth is concerned. So it seems to be a paradox here, doesn't it? You know, there's a lot of paradoxes in the Bible. It seems to say one thing and turns right around and says something else. Let me give you a passage that has to do with that. In 2 Corinthians 6, if you want to, 2 Corinthians 6, verses uh, 8 through 10. I want you to notice what it says here. Paul says, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report. Now, here's the paradox. As deceivers, Paul says, we're like deceivers, and yet we're true. As deceivers, and yet true. As unknown, and yet well known. How could you be unknown, and yet well known? And then he says, as dying, and behold, we live. We're not, we're not dead at all. We're dying every day, but we, behold, we live. He says, as chastened, and not killed. And then he says, as sorrowful. And yet always rejoicing. Can you imagine people rejoicing even though they're sorrowful? Paul says this is the contradiction or the paradox of the language here. As poor, yet making many rich. We're poor, but we make others wealthy, rich. As having nothing and yet possessing all things. And that's the difference between the spiritual aspect and the, the physical and material, isn't it? So uh, there's a lot of... Did you know the paradoxes also include... Uh, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes are like paradoxical language because it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed is it to be poor, happy, 
to be in spiritual poverty. And that's where he starts out. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. For they shall be comforted. There's always a reverse side, isn't it? And he goes on in all of the attitudes seem to be in paradoxical language. Uh, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst. What? After righteousness. They're hungry and they're thirsty. They shall be filled. But they're hungry. And so you have this type of language in the Bible. If you'll notice verse 9 again, it says, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. His humble position is his exaltation. He's a brother of low degree, and yet he is lifted up and he is exalted. When we talk about Christians, servants of God, in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, let me give you this. Luke 10, verse 20. Remember those that were sent out, the 70, and they returned. Let me read the whole passage, verses 17 through 20. It says, And the 70 returned again with joy. Jesus sent the 70 disciples out on a mission, and they returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. What? They could rejoice. They had power, power that was given to them of the Lord to do these wonderful miracles, special miracles in that day, to do all that Jesus said for them to do. Then he says, notwithstanding in, in this, rejoice not. Don't think this is such a great thing. The power and all the glory with the works of God, miraculous power. He says, but rejoice, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You want to rejoice about anything, rejoice that your, your names are written in heaven. So, you know, folks go around and they brag about what all they can do and what all God has done for them. And yes, God has done much for us. But he says the greatest thing he's done for us is written our names in glory. Right? We're a child of God. So it says, let the brother, back in James now, always hold your place where we're studying. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. Take this uh, position. But the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of grass he shall pass away. You know... Jesus told the blind man, he says, Arise, right? The poor blind beggar says, Arise. And what did he tell Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was wealthy. He climbed up in the tree. He says, Come down. See the difference in the position? The poor he lifts up and the rich he brings down. And uh, when old Zacchaeus came down, he says, Lord, the half of my goods, you know, I'll bestow upon on the poor. And he says, If I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I'll restore unto him fourfold. The law, in some instances, demanded twofold. He says, I'll double that. I'll go fourfold. But in some instances, of course, that was expected. But we find that he was going to the ultimate in both directions. The rich in that he is made low. Because, now here's the reason. Because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. He's going to pass away. And he tells, the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but with it the grass. You know, all flesh is as grass, Peter says. But we're just like the flower of the grass. It, we, we appear a little while and then we vanish away. And it shows that death, in the grace of the fashion of it perishes, so also shall the rich man, and as well as the poor, fade in, away in his way. And death shall come both to the rich and poor. Brother Walker preached Wednesday night on the rich man and Lazarus and on five things that we could have in the church and in our lives as Christians that they have in hell. Vision and compassion and tears and concern and all these things. By the way, if you didn't write those down in your Bible, you missed something too. I told Brother Walker I had them written in mine. <laughs> I knew what he was going to preach before he preached. <laughs> but we shared a common bond there because it's a great blessing. The thing about it is, if you'll listen as the Word is preached and these things are taught, 
But you see, uh, here, the rich man is going to pass away. So Lazarus, you know, he died and was carried by the angels. The rich man in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments. Here it's talking about a rich man that possibly was a Christian. But he says in James, he's talking about one that's possibly a Christian, yet he's putting them on the same level as far as God is concerned. And death levels out. Now, we know in the other instance in Luke, it's a different situation. The rich man in hell lift up his eyes, being in torments. But here, you know, there can be rich Christians too. And if a Christian is rich, let him rejoice. Let this brother rejoice in that he is made low, that he can be humbled. He may not have as exalted a position. The story is told about a fellow that was working in a factory for, you know, a very wealthy and prosperous businessman. He's working in this factory. And lo and behold, this, this man is working there. He invited his boss to church, you know, and he came to church and when the boss got in the church house, he found out that he was one of the deacons, and he come up and he participated in all the services, and he had a, had a great position in the church, you see. Well, inside God's house, this poor man, this working man, was exalted above the, the man that was his employer, and the one that he had to look up to during the week. And so, the spiritual position is involved here as well. Now then, we get down through sin. Listen, sin through lust and lure. Look at this. It says in verse 13, it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then the next connection is death through sin. Then, then, lust, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. See that? Okay. So we've really delved into two headings here, sin through lust and lure and death through sin. they both points of the outline that I gave you. But let's notice this. It says in verse 13, let no man say that when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. And he doesn't tempt any man with sin. Now there's a difference between the, the tempt and temptation in verse 2. Look back in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptation. Back there it means trials or tests. Of your faith. Here is temptation to sin. Here in verse 13, it's being tempted to fall into sin. Tempted with lust and lured into sin. So there's two different things in mind. When God tests our faith, that's one thing. God does test us and try us. But God does not tempt us to, to evil. Never. You know, like back in the, the beginning, God did not tempt Adam and Eve. He was He put them in there and he says... In the Garden of Eden, he says, Now, of this tree you shall not eat. In the day thou eatest thereof, there thou shalt surely die. That was a test. It was a trying. It was a test of their faith in the sense. Did they believe God meant what he said? You know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. God said something, and did they believe it? Were they going to act upon it? And he says, If you eat this tree, you'll surely die. Okay. They were under a situation of their faith being tested. But God did not tempt them to eat of that tree. It was Satan that tempted them to evil, right? The devil. And they could have... The thing about Adam and Eve that's different than you and I, in a sense, they could have just as easily chosen good as they could have chosen to, to follow the devil. Now, you and I have a bias to sin because we're sinful by nature. They were holy. They were, they were innocent. They didn't have that sinful inward part at that time pulling them toward evil. You and I have have that as well as have the side that God is pulling us toward himself. See, we're bent to sinning. 
because we are sinners by nature. We sin because we are sinners, and we sin because we choose to sin. They chose to sin, but we also choose to sin. But the the proof of the pudding is this, that we are what we do. In other words, we sin because we are sinners. A dog barks because he's a dog. An apple tree has apples because it's an apple tree, right? And we sin because we're sinners. Someone says, well, we choose to sin. Yes, we do, but we have a bias to sin. Adam and Eve didn't have that. And God did not tempt them. You know, some people have accused God. Now, listen carefully. Some people have accused God of bringing about the circumstances to where Adam and Eve would sin. And thus they lay the temptation upon God. It says right here that he tempted no man with evil. And see, we have to understand that he did not put them, they could not have the excuse, God, you put us here in the garden and therefore it's your fault that we sin. They couldn't use that as an excuse. He put them in the garden and he told them exactly what would happen if they did not obey his command. And they chose to disobey his command. And unlike you and I, they had no inward enticement to that evil except of their own willingness to subject themselves to it. Now, we have an inward enticement to sin. It's pretty easy to be drawn away because we have there's something in us that that sin appeals to. You see the difference? There is a difference. And, and yet they couldn't blame God. And, and you know, a lot of people blame God. Say, well, if I wasn't in such circumstances, if I wasn't brought up in such uh, environment, or if, if this didn't happen, then I wouldn't have sinned. Not so. You're still responsible. Everyone's responsible for his own action. Doesn't make any difference where you are. You can be raised on skid row. You can be raised in the most awful environment there is in the world. And you're still responsible. Have you ever seen this on uh, Jerry Falwell's program one night? A young man preached. He's a colored man. that He was probably in his late 20s, and he had surrendered to preach. And was very neat, well-dressed knowledgeable, he could quote scripture, and he could, it's just a wonderful blessing to listen to him. To to go back to the environment, he was raised, he had to live under a bridge. He had no food. He had to to find a way to get himself an education. Forget his name, some of you may remember, but anyway. But I mean, he knew what he was talking about. You could tell he was very knowledgeable in what he was saying because he'd been educated, he surrendered to preach. First he accepted the Lord, he surrendered to preach, and then he then he prepared himself for the ministry. And I'm telling you, he, wasn't, uh, he wouldn't take the back seat to anyone either. Isn't it? But what I'm saying is, he didn't blame his environment for, for his uh, situation. And a lot of people blame, you know, Adam and Eve couldn't blame God for their sin. They were in the best environment in the world, right? He put them in the Garden of Paradise, in the Garden of Eden. They had nothing to, to cause them to fall into sin. Everything was good. Everything God made, he says, and it was good. Even man, he says, he saw that it was good. There was no taint upon it. There was nothing wrong with it. And yet, uh, something came by and marred the whole situation. And we find that people blame God. You know, Christians today, sometimes Christians blame God for their backslidden condition and living in the world and the wickedness of the world because they say, well, the world's getting so wicked it's hard to live for God. The Bible says Enoch walked with God and was not found, for God took him. And Enoch walked with God, listen carefully, in the most wicked generation that we know in the Old Testament. Because right after that, God destroyed the whole world with the judgment, didn't he, in Noah's day. But Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God and was not found. He was taken on to heaven without dying. And he walked with God even when others were not walking with God. So don't ever use the excuse, say, well, the world's getting so wicked, I just can't live a Christian life. 
Don't use that for an excuse and an out. And don't blame God that he's tempted you with evil because of the providence and the situation he's put you in. It's up to you and I to make our decision if we'll live for God. Oh, Joshua says, choose you this day whom you will serve. He says, if God, God on the other side of the flood, the gods of the idols, or are you going to serve the true God? He says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you know people make up their minds. You have the right to, of choice. You can either serve God or not. It's up to you. And it's an individual decision, it's an individual response, and it's an individual responsibility. And don't ever think you can pass it on and say, well, my wife, or my husband, or my son, my daughter. Adam thought that, didn't he? He said, uh, it says, God, the woman thou gavest me. The woman. The woman says, no, it was the devil that caused me to do it. You know, pass the buck. That's as old as the fall, isn't it? And you know what, she, what Adam was really doing? Adam was really, when he said the woman, he was really blaming God. He says, it's your fault because you gave me the woman. He was blaming God for the situation. And even though it was the most blessed situation in the whole time of, of man's existence up to that point, he had the woman was given him for a help meet, and he could have uh, shown her the right way. But when she ate the forbidden fruit and she gave to Adam, and instead of Adam saying, no, I will not disobey God for the love of the woman, he fell, didn't he? And he fell into sin. He yielded to the temptation. By the way, God held Adam responsible, too. He says the woman, says Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. You know that? That Adam was not deceived. He went in with eyes, both eyes open, right? He knew exactly what he was doing. The, the woman was deceived. And that's why Paul says, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to urge authority over the man, but to be in silence. And he said that, and you read in Timothy, that the man's responsibility is behind the pulpit. The woman has her place of service in the church. I know a lot of these preaching women disagree with me. And some of these churches now are ordaining women as as uh, preachers, and some as priests in their so-called priestly functions. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Nevertheless, they can do all... Have you ever heard a woman get up and as a woman preacher and get up and preach from that text where Paul says, I, you know, that we we're supposed to declare the whole counsel of God, right? Have you ever heard one get up and say, I'm going to choose this for a text. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to worship authority over the man. I'd like to see her preach that, wouldn't you? I'm telling you, she'd get mixed up before it's over. I don't know how she'd explain her way out of that. Because the Bible doesn't teach that she has that place of, of, of responsibility and to uh, declare the word. It says, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires the good work. And let him be the husband of one wife. And preachers need to, to realize that that applies to them. And it doesn't mean one wife at a time either. It means the husband of one wife. It doesn't mean you can change every time you take a notion. Now, I know there are certain instances if the wife is dead, that's a different situation. You're free from the law of the the husband and wife, that marriage vow and law to be married to another and you're actually free in that sense of the word. But you take a preacher that's had one wife and couldn't get along with her or something happened, they separate and divorce, he's not supposed to be behind the pulpit preaching to you. And the deacon's requirements are the same. I've had some good men in the church and I'd approach them about becoming a deacon. They say, well, Brother Joyce, and I wouldn't question them. they say, I'm not qualified. I didn't go into the situation. I knew what they was talking about. But, you know, they, they were good in every respect otherwise. But it's, in some situations, they knew that they just would not be qualified to, to fill that office because the same requirements are laid down, aren't they? 
And we can't go against the Scripture. We cannot pervert it. We cannot twist it to suit our own fancies or change it to suit our own ideas about it. Okay, back to this now. We're talking about sin through lust and lure. It says that God neither tempteth he any man. Verse 13, but, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. Look at that. It's his own lust. It belongs to him. The lust is in him. And he's tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. He's lured into something. Sin through lust and lure. So a man has to own up to the fact that the, the sin is his. And then in verse 15 it says, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So uh, there can be an enticement without sin and without yielding to sin. Notice the order. The order is lust and sin and death. But every man is tempted. Now look. He's tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, I want you to look at that. When lust hath conceived, you've heard the old story that the evil thoughts come, and the one has said this way, you can let a bird fly over your, your head, but you don't have to let him stop and build a nest there, right? And that's the, the evil thought, right? The evil thought can fly and come across your mind, but you don't have to let it take root there. It says, a lust when it is conceived, bringeth forth sin. So, when you have that lust that comes, and that lure, and that temptation that comes, there's a time to put a stop to it and say, God, deliver us from this, and help me to not yield to lust, and to sin, and to temptation. The temptation so that it will be conceived and bring forth sin. It's bad enough to think an evil thought, let alone to, to let it conceive and then do those evil deeds. Right, And so there's a stopping place for it in our lives if we'll turn to God and if we'll ask God's help. And every man has temptation. Every woman has temptation. We all have trials. We all have faith is tried, but that's a different word for temptation. That was in the earlier part of the chapter. When God tries and tests our faith, that's, a different, that's different altogether than the temptation of sin. That first temptation in verses... 2 and 3 is talking about the trying of our faith and the testing of our faith. God did tempt Abraham, not with evil, but to test his faith, right? And he said, Abraham, you offer up, go to Mount Moriah, offer up your son as a burnt sacrifice. God was seeing if Abraham really had the faith that he felt, that he knew that he had. When the testing was over, he says, okay, Abraham, he says, don't touch Isaac. He says, there's a ram over there. He showed him a ram in the thicket caught by his horns. And he offered him up for a burnt sacrifice. And it says that God accepted the fact that, that Abraham's faith was true. And he says he counted that his faith was really genuine. He knew that Abraham stood the test, didn't he? So here, but this temptation is to sin. Now let's get on with it quickly. It says in verse 15, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And you know this law... Lust, sin, and death cannot be broken. It has never been broken. Someone says, well, what about it for, what about a believer? Our believer, believers are sure of their possession of eternal life, but it doesn't eliminate this law of God. Sin still brings death. We know that eternal death and the penalty of sin is the eternal separation from God that Jesus Christ purchased soul, our salvation, on the cross, and once we have received him by faith, he's delivered us from the penalty that is due sin. 
But then what about the Christian? Suppose he goes out here and he sins. What's God going to do to it? Well, he'll chasten him. He'll scourge him. He'll correct him. And then John says, there is a sin unto death. I don't say that you shall pray for it. For a brother, right? He says, there is a sin unto death. Remember, and of course, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament that testifies to this. Remember that the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, they kindled Leviticus chapter 10. It says, they, they offered strange fire unto the Lord, which the Lord commanded them not, right? They offered something that God didn't command. And God says, I'm... I don't want that, and he, he smote them dead. He killed them. They sinned, they crossed the deadline, God says, that's all of it. He says, I told you not to offer any fire, but the fire that God had kindled. And they said, well, any religious service will do. We'll make up our own mind. We'll do as we want to. You know, you have a lot of uh, preachers doing that today, and a lot of churches said, just any way we want to do it. God says, I've, I've set the guidelines. You go by. If God was acting the same as he did in the Old Testament time, you'd have churches on fire, and you'd have preachers falling dead behind the pulpit. That, that's the truth. Because they have chosen to do things that God has not said for them to do. And it was simply, you turn back to Leviticus 10 quickly, and I'll show you. It was simply the fact that they were doing something that God didn't tell them to do. Verse 1, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them as censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon. Now they were supposed to put fire and they were supposed to put incense. And offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. The bottom line is which he commanded them not. Remember, God's fire was to come from the brazen altar, and it was they offered common fire, just something of their own making, their own idea. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. See that? It says they died before the Lord. What was this fire that God commanded not? It's a type of religious practices that's not based on the Word of God. That's what it's a type of. It's a type of a church that's saying, we'll just make this a religious practice, and it has no ground in it for the Word of God, but it suits our fancy and it, it, it fits our uh, mold and we'll just start doing it because we think it's all right. Where did it come from? From their own uh, doings, not from the Word of God. And if you were to classify that into churches today and even Baptist churches where things are going on that's not according to the Word of God, you would find just what we said. If it were not the day and age of grace, God would be shutting down a lot of pulpits in the land today. But it's the day and age of grace, and he's, he's bearing long, and he's long-suffering. If he was as strict as he was in the days of Nadab and Abihu, it would be a very serious situation, wouldn't it? The thing about it is that uh, I have some things written down. It was a fire that was kindled by themselves. And it's a type of an attempt to serve the Lord in the energy of the flesh instead of the power of the Holy Spirit. How much that goes on in churches today is of the flesh instead of the power of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, we ought to seek strictly that God's will and work be done in the church. I say if in any church and in our church, if there's something that is of the flesh, just forget it. Don't start, don't continue to do it. If, if the Holy Spirit guides us in it and directs us in it and anoints it and blesses it, then, and if it's scriptural, and he only blesses that which is scriptural, by the way, so you don't have any conflict of interest. So the Holy Spirit blesses what God's word has said to do, and he doesn't bless those things that God says not to do or, or those things that just come from the natural mind that men think they ought to do. This is the situation here, right? That's what you find here. And then it's a fire that did not come from the brazen altar. And it's a type of the of failing to worship God on the ground of the shed blood of Christ. Do you get that point? This fire that Nadab and Abihu kindled was a fire that did not come from the brazen altar. 
which God said would be kept burning continually. It was a fire he kindled, and he says, you'll keep it burning continually. And so it was common fire. They kindled their own fire, and they offered incense, and they said, it doesn't make any difference. We'll just do it our way. And God says, it does make a difference. You'll do it my way. And that was all. And you know, when we think that we can worship God, uh, you know, there's a lot of people say, well, we can worship God just because Christ lived an example of a good life. You worship God through Christ's atoning sacrifice, through his shed blood. In fact, it's only through his shed blood that we even have a right to pray and come in the presence of God. The Bible says, because he shed his blood, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter in where? The holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. You see, folks that just come to God and say, I'll just call on the name of Jesus. And they don't believe in the sacrificial atoning blood of Christ. And they don't recognize the fact that only because of him they have even the privilege and right of prayer. And to call upon the, the Lord. God's not hearing that. God has set the rules. We, we have to follow them. It's a fire that was not kindled by God, and it's a type of failing to pray to God in the name of Jesus and through the merits of Jesus. Being a man-made fire was a type of the uh, worked-up revival as a substitute for a heaven-sent revival, see? being the fire that man-made. Did you know men can work up revival? Uh, have you ever seen preachers work up a revival? I could work up a revival tonight. Brother Randy would be a lot better at it tonight. He'd get up here and he'd get you all in. He could get up here tonight as an evangelist and he could say, let's all say amen. Let's all say hallelujah. He'd get you standing up on your feet. First thing you know, he'd have you all shouting. And he'd say, now, now, isn't this good? And boy, you could just start in and that's it's worked up instead of prayed down. And when it's prayed down, God does something with the heart and life of an individual. When it's worked up, when that emotion is gone, you walk out the door and say, what did we do? We, well, we had a good time. You probably wouldn't know a thing the preacher said. You wouldn't have been better instructed. You wouldn't have been drawn closer to God. But you'd have thought you felt real good. That's what happens in a lot of revivals. People go out the door feeling high. Boy, and I'm telling you, on Sunday night or the end of that revival night, they could set the whole town of Rio Doce on fire. And the next day, they're out here in the world, mixed with the world, doing anything and everything they want to do. And that revival doesn't last if it's merely emotional. It must touch the will and the heart and the desire of an individual so that that person says, I really want to serve God, and there's a real divine change inwardly. It must touch more than the emotion. And so... We don't want to practice trying to get people emotionally stirred. I want to be a blessing. I want, you to, I want you to be blessed by the Word. But if the Word will not bless you, I can't stand up here and make you a blessing. But the Word can give you a blessing. So it's a type of a worked-up revival instead of as a substitute for a heaven-sent revival. I could go on and on in this line of thinking because there's a whole sermon here in Leviticus on that. But you say, well, preacher, that was in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Turn to Acts chapter 5. We're talking about temptation, lust, and then sin, and then what? Death. Acts chapter 5. What happened here? Say, well, does God do that now? Is there a sin unto death for Christians? Look. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain price and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? And to keep back part of the price of the land. I heard a preacher preach one time. He says that God killed Ananias and Sapphira because they didn't tithe. And that wasn't it. It wasn't it. Look at this. 
It says, whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And, and after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? It says, you didn't even have to give a tithe of it unless God, God laid it on your heart. You should have, but nevertheless, this is not why they, they were smitten. It says, before you sold it, it was yours. And after you sold it, you had power over it. But you came in here and lied, and you said, we got this much for the land. And you kept back part of the price and making God think you and trying to lie to the Holy Spirit. Now, look at it. Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Lust, when it is what? Conceived, bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth what? Death. Now look what happened. Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Now see, it was conceived in their heart. This lie was conceived in their heart. What was the lust that was involved? The lust and the lure was that they would be accounted as being real good Christians because they had given so much. They sold this land and they gave it to the apostles. They gave it to the church. My, see, Barnabas had just done that. You read back. I wish I had time for all this. Look here. Read back in the 34th verse. It says, Neither was there any among them that lacked of the fourth chapter quickly. For as many as were possessors of lands and houses sold them and brought the price of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distributed Distribution was made to every man according to his had need. And Joseph, who was by apostle surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. All he was doing was getting right with God. Because the Levites were not to be possessors of this in the first place. Right? You go back and read the requirement. They were not to be owners of land. God had other things for them. So all he was doing is getting right with God. So Ananias and Sapphira saw he was called the son of consolation. They said, oh, we'll follow. Look what Barnabas got. They thought Barnabas was a great guy. And he just repented of his sins and got right with God. Well, it was great. It's true that he, he, he needed to do that, all right. But then old Ananias and Sapphira, down back in the lesson, verse 4, Thou hast not, 5-4, Acts 5-4, Thou hast not lied unto men but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. Last part of verse 4, Thou hast not lied unto men but unto God. He says, Why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Right? The Holy Ghost. You lie to the Holy Ghost, you lie to God. So the Holy Ghost is God, right? Third person of the Trinity. You have a lot of doctrinal and theological terms coming out here in this thing that happened to Ananias and Sapphira, right? Look at it. Verse 3, uh, Peter says, Why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Verse 4 says, Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. To lie to the Holy Spirit is the same as lying to God. He's the third person of the Godhead. And some people lie to the Holy Ghost. Lie to the Holy Spirit of God. Some people resist. Some people uh, uh, not only resist the Holy Spirit, but they grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Christians can grieve the Holy Spirit. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. Great fear came on all them that heard these things. The young men rose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. It was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. She's a little late for church, wasn't she? <laughs> three hours later. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. She said, I agree with my husband. Yeah, that's how much we got. You know? Sure enough, that was the price. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? There you have it again. Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. My, what power the apostles and the churches had in those days for people that broke the laws and the word of God. And it, if it was not, as I say, this day and age of grace, 
you'd find people falling dead in churches all over the country. Right? Now look at this. Then, then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. Now look, verse 11. And great fear came upon all the church. I guess so. You have a man and woman come in and fall dead and the guys take them out and bury them in the same service. I guess great fear would come on the church. But God was showing these people that he meant business. And I believe really, Ananias and Sapphira, I believe they were believers. I believe they just crossed the deadline and said, we can get by with this and we want this. They want. They wanted this glory that was... that. That old Barnabas was getting, and they thought, well, boy, this sounds good. Now, we gave this to the church. And, boy, they wanted everybody to know how much it was, and they wanted to, and they were lying about it. If it had been the truth, if they had said, now, look, this is only part of what we've got, been acceptable. If they had only said it's uh, ten cents on the dollar, it would have been acceptable. If they had said, well, we don't want to give it. We need it for something else. Peter says it was yours in your own power, right? But what happened? They wanted this, and God says that's all. And you know, let me give you another passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. Our time is just about gone. It is gone, but I want to give you this quickly. And you know, this has to do with the Lord's Supper. And verse 30 says this. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many, look at that word, sleep. Many Christians are dead. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 30. And I won't have time to expound the whole passage. But what does it mean? Those who were taking the partaking the Lord's Supper unworthy, those who were not discerning the Lord's body in it, those who were making a light of it or not even considering the situation that this uh, bread that was broken and this blood, this uh, this these symbols of the bread of the body and the and the shed blood of Christ, the bread and the and the fruit of the vine were symbols of Christ's death and the shedding of His blood, and they were just taking it haphazardly without any regard to the fact that it, that it represented the, the Lord's death on the cross. And it says, many are weak and sickly among you. And it says, and many sleep. Many sleep. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. That means that they were taken out of this life. That means they were dead. Didn't mean they'd fallen asleep naturally. And, and John says, there is, 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, he says, there is a sin unto death. So what we're talking about, lust and lure and temptation, okay, lust and sin and death. And the law has never changed. You say, well, they were Christians. These were Christians. And by the way, they were Christians because the, the Bible uses the term sleep as pertaining to God's children, not to, the, not to the unsaved dead. It's always applied to Christians. They that are asleep in Jesus shall God bring with him. But God can cut this life short. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tempt God to, to just... Uh, Stop my life now. I want to keep on living. And the thing about it is, you cannot uh, uh, break that law of God. Sin, uh, lust, and sin, and sin, living in sin. You say, well, I see Christians and see people that are backslidden and things like They said they were saved. Well, brother, they're not going to get by with it. God is either going to correct them and chasten them and bring them back, or there's going to be a day that they'll be cut off of this life. They'll cross the deadline. They'll go too far, and God say, that's enough. It's time for you to go on home. And then, of course, they're going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and they're also uh, going to lose their rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And they will suffer loss, but their soul, the Bible says, his soul shall be saved, yet so was by fire, because he trusted in the Lord. The thing about it is, I wouldn't want to end up that way, would you? I want to end up with God's blessings upon my life. I don't want to come to the place that, 
that this, and James is talking about the same situation. He says, every man is tempted when he's gone away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, bringeth forth sin, and, and sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. We need to consider that in light of some of the things we see going on in the religious world today. There's going to be a, an end to some of it. We've already seen things happen. You know, it's sad to see like these in the ministry that we've seen fall in the last few years. It's sad to see men with talent and with the inspiration and ability to preach the word. And very, uh, it seems like touching the hearts of people all over 